One of the reasons I like going to Europe so much is that there's so many different ways of living and cultures and languages and everything in such a small area. And that might be a function of how I grew up, and that leads to an illustration, which is that I grew up in St. Louis, and let's say we were just going to draw a circle around St. Louis and make it, say, a thousand miles in radius. So we have this big circle, and now look at that and say, how many languages are spoken within that circle? And the answer would be one, English. Now, go and draw that same circle anywhere in Europe. Let's say Belgium, Brussels. And you'd have the circle a thousand miles wide. And how many languages are spoken? And a ton. French, Belgian, German, Czech, English, Spanish. And I'm sure there's a bunch I'm forgetting. Dutch, for example. And, and that's just today. Going back further, there would have been a, a whole lot of little regional dialects and things like that that would have made this a confused jumble. And so you have this situation where you have people living right next to each other, but that have fundamentally different cultures. And it still manifests itself today, and I think that's part of what makes it interesting. One of the things, just a little thing, like going to dinner. You go to dinner in Spain, say. And my wife and I did this. Our first night in Spain, we went to dinner. It was probably 9, 9.30. And we were the only ones in the restaurant. Nobody started showing up until about 10, 10.30 when we were leaving. And that's really odd. They eat dinner really late there. Now you converse that with, say, Ireland. You go to try to eat dinner in Ireland at 9.30, forget it. It, it are all closed. There's no place open. And that's happened to us. I remember our first trip to Ireland. We were driving around and it was summer, so it stayed light very late and we kind of lost track of time. And we didn't get around to thinking about dinner until about 9, 9.30. Well, we start driving around looking for a restaurant and there is nothing. There was nothing open. They, they eat dinner very early. You know, seven, eight at the latest. Most places stop serving food around 8.30. And so just within this space of not that far, you have a big difference in something pretty basic. And this ties into what I want to talk about now, which is that you have these two islands next to each other. You have Ireland to the west and Britain to the east. And to us looking from afar, they look the same. They look not that different in terms of the people that... You Basically, pasty white people living on both islands don't seem to be that different. And yet, the overlap between these two islands has led to enormous problems. All this strife and all this conflict that's gone back hundreds of years. You've probably heard the phrase about the English ruling Ireland for over 800 years. And the problems didn't end when the English left in the 1920s. It went on, frankly, through the present day. You still have the British in Northern Ireland. And, you know, most of us can still remember the 80s and the 90s when there was probably no place more dangerous in the world than Belfast. If, some, if you told someone you were going to Belfast in, say, 1990, they would have said you were insane. There were bombings going on all the time and just a lot of horrific violence from people that kind of look like each other and, and don't appear that different to us. So how did this happen? That's kind of what I want to talk about today is the British influence in Ireland, how it happened, how it manifested itself over history, and how, how the Irish, for the most part anyway, have gotten them out. I think that will really help you put a lot of things in context when you're in Ireland and hopefully add something to your trip. We've already talked about this a little bit in that you can see a fundamental change in the buildings 
once the British arrive. And the British arrived late 1100s, early 1200s. Basically, prior to that, you have a style of Irish building that changes immediately once the British come. Once they come, you have these Norman fortresses, which are these sort of rectangle towers that look like the White Tower in Tower of London. But we didn't talk about how the British actually came to Ireland, and it's actually an interesting story. One of the things you'll see if you read history is that whenever one culture goes to another, you would think that, say, when the English or the Spanish or whoever go to meet the natives in North America or South America, that the natives would act as a block and interact with the European invaders. But they never do. They always have their own interests against each other, and they never put those aside and just deal with the Europeans as a block. They always have these rivalries and, and things like that going on. And it's not just there. When you read about Magellan going around the world, he would interact with these various groups and tribes and natives and things like that. And that was forever happening. They were spending more time fighting each other than they were him. And to be fair, he would foster that quite a bit. But it always happened. You see it again when it comes to the English coming to Ireland. That essentially they were invited. Here's what happened. I've mentioned previously you have these different regions of Ireland. You have Leinster, Munster, Ulster, and Connacht. And these are the four major regions of Ireland. You have many kings within these regions. And they're all vying for control to be the king of that region. That was true in the southwest of Ireland, where you had a region called Leinster. And in the 1100s, you had a acknowledged king of Leinster, and his name was Dermot McMurrah. And as they do, he invaded a, another small kingdom, that of a one Tiernan or Rourke. And not only did Dermot take over this kingdom, but he also took Tiernan or Rourke's wife. Tiernan O'Rourke did not look kindly on this, and it was a situation where he had a powerful friend, and his powerful friend was the acknowledged ruler of Connacht. His name was Rory O'Connor. What happens is Rory O'Connor joins forces with this little Tiernan O'Rourke kingdom, and they go and they battle against the king of Leinster, and they win, and they kick him out of Leinster. So he's gone. He's basically exiled from Ireland. What happens is Dermot heads over to England where he had previously cultivated a good relationship with the English king, Henry. He goes to Henry and says, hey, pal, would you help me get my kingdom back? You know, it was taken away from me unfairly. And Henry says, you know, I would, I'd love to help you, but I got my own hands full. I'm, I'm invading France. It's a big thing. I need all my forces here. So I really can't help you. But what I can do is this. I'll give you this letter. And it basically is a letter that says that I smile on your efforts at getting your kingdom back and that I would smile on any English lord that saw fit to help you. And so Dermot takes that letter and heads back into England and spends some time going around to the various English lords trying to drum up some support to help get his kingdom back. And he runs into a guy that ends up helping him. This guy is named Richard de Clare, but he is forever known to history as Strongbow, which is a great name. But anyway, so Strongbow decides to help this guy get his kingdom back, but only if Dermot says that he will let Strongbow marry his daughter. So that's the agreement. Strongbow is going to help him get his kingdom back, 
but Strongbow gets to marry his daughter, which then, of course, is going to make Strongbow next in line for the throne of Leinster, which now he will add to his kingdom. So that's the plan. So they go back, and they invade Leinster. They have a big battle. Rory O'Connor comes back, but between Strongbow and Dermot McMurra, they fight him off, and now they have control of southwest Ireland. And at this point, Strongbow is simply next in line to the throne of Leinster. But now Henry sees what's going on. Henry, the king of England. And what he sees is a guy about to add a big chunk to his little fiefdom. In other words, that he was already an English lord, but now he's adding all of Leinster to what he controls. And this makes Henry nervous. These English kings are forever living in fear of their English lords and and keeping their, their crown on their head. So Henry decides, no, 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 this is too much. I can't let this guy have this much power. So he takes control at this point. And we're talking 1170s at this point. And so Henry goes to Ireland and takes direct royal control of this area to make sure that the land is controlled by the king and not one of his uppity nobles. And this area you're talking about is Leinster, which of course is Southwest Ireland. And it has Dublin as part of it as well. Waterford is part of this uh, too. And so you have a good little chunk of Ireland that's now under English control. And so kind of an interesting story how they got started. Anyway, the next thing is then, okay, well, what happens there? How do the English sort of take over control? And man, they don't. And it's really interesting to hear the English describe how Ireland was at that time. And that the English viewed themselves as civilized colonists and the Irish as just wild savages. And you hear that term all the time whenever you read about it. They would just refer to the Irish as these savages and uh, wild Irish all the time. And what happens is there's expansion by the British, but it's not uniform expansion. There's expansions and there's contraction. You have these Irish lords that gain power and they will fight off the British in areas and then other times the British will become more ascendant and you know it just goes back and forth. Incidentally, the area of particular British uh, stronghold was the area around Dublin and Dublin and the area around it was referred to as the Pale. The British pretty much always had control of the Pale and, and Incidentally, that's where the term beyond the pale comes from as well. You may have heard that, but it's from this notion of being outside the British-controlled part of Ireland and then into the wild hinterlands. Anyway, the British keep coming and keep attempting to take over and control Ireland, and they never really get there. And, and there's three reasons that I wanted to kind of talk about real quick to show you how that happened. The first is that in many cases, the English who come over and now they start farming and now they start living with the Irish. Well, they would do what the English refer to as going native. They would, after a period of time, start speaking Gaelic. They would start taking on Irish customs and wearing Irish dress. And this is a problem for the English. They send these people over and over time, they simply become Irish. The second thing is that the English have their own problems around this time. You know, they, they start coming over in the 1200s. We're immediately confronted then with the 1300s. Well, what happens in the 1300s? That's the time of the Great Plague and all these disasters in Europe. And then the 1400s are no better. The Hundred Years' War is going on during this time. 
up to 1453. So the English have their own problems to deal with besides Ireland, and they're not able to just really devote all their resources to taking it over. And this leads to the third thing, and this is big, which is that by the time the Protestant Revolution comes to Europe, and to England in particular, and you may recall Henry VIII, who started the Church of England and broke from Rome, so this would be in the 1500s, when he wanted to divorce his wife. Well, by this point, the British were unable to impose their will on the Irish and to force them all to become Protestant. And so what happens is you have a part of a kingdom that does not take on the religion of the king. And I can't think of a place where that happens anywhere or where that's essentially tolerated. In every other case, the crown is then imposing its religion on all parts of its kingdom. But in this case, the English crown is unable to do that. And so you have Ireland remaining Catholic, at least in large measure. And this has big consequences even going up to today because this was a big part of what differentiated the Irish from the British. Is that the British were Protestant, the Irish were Catholic, and we're talking about an era here when religion was paramount and that these people would fight and die based on religious differences all the time. And so now you have this schism going on between Ireland and Britain. So how do the British then ultimately come to control all of Ireland. Most of it occurs during the time of Elizabeth and Cromwell. So we're talking 1600s here. So I'll mention two things that I think are, are really important to show this, how the English take control. And the first is under Elizabeth. What you have is a situation where the Irish are revolting all the time. I wish I had the time to sit down, and maybe somebody's done this somewhere, a list of major Irish revolts against the British. And it would be a long list. Anything you read about Ireland is just, okay, revolt, 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 all the time. And there comes to be this little bit of a pattern, especially under Elizabeth and the people after her, where the Irish revolt, which of course the D British take a dim view of, but what they take an even dimmer view of is that the Irish are always going to Catholic countries and eliciting support. That might be the Pope, that might be Spain, it might be somewhere else, but they're always going to these countries and eliciting support. And of course, these countries all hate Britain. And so many times they do offer support. But the British can't tolerate this because now essentially, you know, these are their enemies that are helping people within their own countries. And so naturally, the British take an extremely dim view of that. And they make every effort at repressing said revolt. What they'll do in addition then is inevitably decide to take the lands of the revolting Irish lords or chieftains or whatever you want to call them and take them for the crown. And then what they'll do is try to create a plantation. They'll try to create a land system where they'll send over somebody in charge and then have a bunch of tenants working the land, but they'll all be good English Protestants. And so it's essentially creating a colony within Ireland after these revolts. And it happens time and time again. And a particularly important one, which has huge consequences even for today, is in 1607, 
Because after another one of these Irish revolts and where they had brought in foreign forces, you have something called the Flight of the Earls. You have several earls from Ulster. And remember, Ulster is this northeast region of Ireland, and it's the part that is essentially Northern Ireland and British today. So how did that happen? Because at the time, Ulster was probably more Gaelic than any other part of Ireland. You know, there were more revolts there. There was more fighting against the British. There were more Irish people than almost anywhere else. And what happens is these earls of Ulster are involved with one of these insurrections. And they take off in 1607 to go try to solicit help from the Pope, from Spain. And of course, the British take a dim view of that, as they always do. And so they seize this land in Ulster from these earls. And then they create counties. And this time, though, it's particularly effective. They actually make these counties work. They hadn't worked so well in some of these other places. But in Ulster, it works. And that is really what has led to Ulster being part of the UK even today, is that it took on this English Protestant character that then continued from there. Now, under Cromwell, though, is where you have full control by the British of Ireland. And here's what happened there. The English Civil War, so now they're fighting each other, and this is in the 1600s. Well, the Irish decide that's a good time to revolt, and they revolt with a vengeance in about 1641. By even the lowest estimates, they had butchered 10,000 people in Ulster alone. And so this was a particularly savage revolt. And at the time, though, the British are waging their own civil war and they're not equipped to do it. But once Cromwell wins in Britain, he then turns his full attention to Ireland. And he has no time and no patience for these Irish. In fact, he refers to them as those barbarous wretches uh, when he goes over. And he goes on a serious campaign where there is payback of the highest order. He stayed almost a year and campaigned throughout all of Ireland and basically put it under firm royal control, except Connacht. And in fact, you'll hear this phrase used sometimes, which is to hell or Connacht. Uh, and that's where Cromwell said the Catholics could go. And now remember, Cromwell and the parliamentary forces at this time of England are, are Puritan. So these are Protestant holy warriors in many respects, fighting these Catholics. And you know, when you have these wars of religion, there's not a lot of compromise that goes on. It's fight to the death, and that's what they did. So they took control. They pushed these Catholics out. They pushed them to Connacht, which is the poorest land in the country, and they dispossessed the Catholics of a lot of their rights even. They couldn't own land. They couldn't have public office. They uh, weren't allowed to carry guns or anything like that. And so that's where we find ourselves as of the 1600s is that the British end up in, in firm control of most of Ireland and the Gaelic-speaking Catholics are a di distinct minority even within their own country, at least in terms of the power being held. So where do we go from here? H how does Ireland go from this country under firm British control? And it was, you know, at this point for a few hundred years, to a situation where it's actually independent. And just to flash forward, I'll let you know that Ireland became independent from Britain by an agreement in 1922. So that is essentially the end date, at, at least for the Republic of Ireland. And of course, we have Ulster, these northern parts still within the United Kingdom as Northern Ireland. But 
in any event, how do we go from British control to independent? There's these stirrings in the 1800s. Well, there's always stirrings and there's always revolts. Again, it just seems to never end. These revolts go right through the 1700s and 1800s. But, you know, this is the time, too, of the penal laws. The Catholics have very limited rights. They have very limited opportunities. And a guy that comes along in the 1800s, his name's Daniel O'Connell. He becomes referred to as the liberator because he is instrumental in getting these penal laws overturned. And in fact, he becomes the first Irish Catholic member of the British Parliament. And he goes on to press various Irish issues there and was enormously popular. So we're talking early 1800s here. I just wanted to mention him because he's particularly important. There's a lot of other people as well. In fact, the street that you'll go on when you go to the uh, GPO or General Post Office and some other areas in Dublin is now O'Connell Street. So very influential person. Another one is Charles Parnell, and he's more towards the late 1800s. And he is sometimes referred to as the uncrowned king of Ireland because of the power that he wielded. He, he was a member of parliament as well. And he actually is instrumental in setting up a political party that is distinctly Irish and that pursues these Irish interests. And what's particularly important about him is that he uses that to force what's called home rule. At the time, the Irish really weren't pressing for full independence. That wasn't the, the main thing they wanted. What they wanted was something called home rule, which is they would still remain in the United Kingdom, but they would have their own parliament. They would get to make their own laws for themselves. And what happens with Parnell is that he has now this Irish party, which is small, but it tips the balance. At the time, you have these battles going on in Britain between you know the Whigs and the Tories. And the leader of the liberal side of that was a guy named Gladstone. And in order to get this small but important Irish party on his side, he agrees to make home rule for Ireland a tenet of the liberal party. And so now you have that this discussion going on in the mainstream. It doesn't actually happen, but it's on the table. What's interesting is that by the early 1900s, it's not just on the table, but it's going to happen. In fact, by 1914, there is a home rule bill that's enacted into law after a lot of back and forth and machinations and things like that. In 1914, they finally get a law on the books in the United Kingdom that says that Ireland will have home rule. However, 1914 is also the start of World War I. One of the things they do as part of that is that they essentially issue a stay. They say, okay, we have to deal with this war. So that is suspended until the end of the war. And at the time, they thought the war was might be kind of quick, but it didn't turn out that way. And it went on for four years and turned into this titanic struggle. Well, during this time, the Irish have another revolt. It is referred to as the Easter Rising. It takes place on Easter of 1916. And this was, frankly, yet another Failed Irish revolt is all it was. And it's interesting that it, it really had no chance to succeed. The Irish, once again, were seeking help from Britain's enemies, and they actually got or had coming to them a shipment of arms from Germany, which was on its way. And then they were going to use those arms and then call up the volunteers, and then they were going to have this revolt. Well, first thing that goes wrong is that the British intercept the guns. 
And so now they don't have all the weaponry that they think they're going to have. The second thing that goes wrong is that they call off the revolt. They were actually publishing it in paper, sometimes in code, to communicate uh, with the volunteers across the country. And they call off the revolt because they don't have the guns. Well, then they decide to go forward anyway, but not everybody gets the message. So they're starting without guns and with a confused situation. And the whole of their strategy seems to have been, hey, let's go just grab important government buildings and then wait for the British to attack us and we'll fight them off. And that was doomed to failure. The main centerpiece of this was in Dublin, where they were going to go and did capture the general post office, which is a big, imposing-looking building right in central Dublin. You'll no doubt see it. There's still bullet holes in it to this day. And they hold up there. And they held out about a week. Then the British inevitably fought through them, and, and they were forced to surrender. What's interesting is that this revolt was initially enormously unpopular, even within Ireland. In fact, there's stories of these guys being spit on as they were uh, led away by the British. And, and the reason it was unpopular was that, you know, there were Irish fighting in World War I for the British. They, they weren't drafted. There were volunteers of Ireland. Ireland was a part of the UK. They're involved in this titanic struggle. You have Irish boys off fighting and dying and then here you guys are trying to take advantage of that and essentially stab britain in the back while our guys are fighting for them and it was very unpopular but the british do kind of what the british do a lot which is overplay their hand and and become very hard-nosed about this and they execute each and every one of the leaders of this revolt and that changes opinion in ireland and eventually it turns what was a failed plot into catalysts for independence. At this point, home rule is off the table. But now the Irish are pissed and they want no part of this. And so they develop something which you've heard of called the Irish Republican Army or IRA. And they start ambushing the British anywhere they can. The British don't take this line down and you may have heard of the Black and Tans, and they send over this Black and Tans group that is uh, responsible for reprisals and, and all sorts of atrocities as well. And that's what plays out over the next few years. And eventually, though, they sign an agreement whereby the Irish are, have essentially independence, but they're still part of the United Kingdom. And they actually have to swear an oath of allegiance to the crown, but they're independent. So they win, and they sign off on that deal. But to a big chunk of Ireland, that's totally unacceptable. And this oath is a huge issue. And that plays out over time. And in fact, what you have immediately after independence. So if independence is 1921 or 22, the Irish Civil War is 1922 to 1924, where they fight this out. And, you know, that carries on into the 20s. But I'm getting ahead of myself because that then is, for all intents and purposes, the end of the British in, in Ireland. Anyway, I don't want to get too far into the whole independence thing or even go into the troubles in Northern Ireland. I think I'll talk about those in a separate one of these. But I just wanted to give you sort of the background of the British and how they, they ended up there and what the nature uh, of the fight was between them and the Irish as it went forward. It's a huge issue in Ireland, even today, and to understand a lot of the history and a lot of the culture and a lot of the things that we'll be looking at, I think having this general background ought to help. So 
Hope you found this somewhat interesting and it wasn't too confusing. I will get back to covering some discrete uh, places in Ireland that we're going to visit starting in the next one of these. So I'll see you then.